John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1121.ac2718, certificate number 36640. Seawise Giant. Building of this spectacular supership, longest and largest man-made creation on the sea, also recalled the building over 2,000 years ago of the Great Wall of China, longest and largest man-made creation on the land. Two wonders of the old and the new worlds. At the start of this year, you and I had the opportunity to go out to sea together on on uh, the Jonathan Colton cruise. It's really the smartest thing to do right at the beginning of a global pandemic is to get on a cruise ship. It's It still remains one of the more astonishing things about this year that on March 10th, you and I got off of a ship, went through a Florida airport... And made it back to Seattle, and apparently neither of us contracted coronavirus in the process. We were sure hand sanitizing every surface on that plane. Uh, That's true. A, a packed Fort Lauderdale airport of people who were heading home because they were they were pissed because their own cruises had been canceled. All their cruises were canceled. On, on the day that Tom Hanks got sick and the NBA shut down, you and I were, what, off the coast of the Dominican Republic? <laughs> yeah, being prohibited from landing, right? Or what, there was... There was yeah, Turks it, and Caicos wouldn't right. let us this show. So we could very easily... I mean, that's something we'd signed up for months before and didn't want to bail on a commitment, but uh, that could very easily have ended with us on a boat with a lot of Malaysian Ugh. workers for... For six months. Well, and yeah, right. I mean, people could have, we could have been quarantined. People could have been getting sick. We could have gotten sick. Um, our, uh, our good friend Liz Fair, who is somewhat of a noted germaphobe. <laughs> I like how Liz Fair is our good friend now. Oh, yeah. Well, she's, I mean, my good friend. Just hanging out with Liz Fair. You know, she's your, yeah. I mean, you haven't met her, but. <laughs> but I'll, I'll put, I'll put you guys together. Put you guys together in a room. I'm sure she'd, I'm sure she'd love meeting the famous Ken Jennings. Uh, but she said, that her germophobia prohibited her from going on the boat, but she would fly to meet us um, and put on the show in the Dominican Republic. So she did. She flew down and was whisked to the stage in a in a um, completely sanitized minivan. She played her show, got back in the minivan, and was whisked back to the airport. Not because she's a prima donna, but because she is like... Um, she was already someone who she she commented once uh, 
that she really liked Jonathan Colton and myself, except that she could tell that we were both nose touchers. <laughs> this was years before the now. Explain to me years before the the, the pandemic. Explain to me what she thought you were. T- you she thought you and Jonathan would touch each other's noses. No, she just or? said that when she would stand there talking to us, oh, she just noticed that she we were so close. We both would. Touch our noses. Oh, with your you touch your own noses hands. with your own. As hands. we're talking, like we would scratch our noses or touch, basically touch our and own. Every faces. time that happens, she's like, ah, she just no. just recoiled in horror. She didn't show it. You know, she's a she's a gracious person, but but what a good. But sport. later on, she found a way to mention it. But what is a good sport for her to come in in her little Pope mobile? Yeah, and do a full show. It was very nice of her. She was very charming. Sing and run, sing and run. But how did you like? Being at sea. Had you been at sea before? Had you spent any time on the open ocean? Yeah. Uh, I knew I didn't get seasick. Like in very rough seas, I get sleepy and have to lie down. Mm-hmm. Um, I find... There was a lot of barfing on this cruise because the boat was really bouncing on the way out there. More than is usual, I'm told. But I noticed that you were fine. I was fine. I... Mindy had a little bit of a tummy. She wasn't loving it, but yeah. she wasn't, I don't think she was, she wasn't feeling great. Right. But she wasn't like nauseated for two or three days, like I think some people were. We lost several performers the first not first few days, not permanently, but but definitely people missed the show, missed their own show. Amy Mann looked even paler and more uh, un- uh, ethereal than usual. Storm De Costanza had to be lifted up out of the backstage and carried into his cabin, I think, having barfed himself to death. But um, but you were fine. You were like a rock. Like every like in every situation, Ken, you are a rock. How do you do it? Uh, it's just got to be genetics. I can't take I can't take any credit for some uh, positive mental attitude or set of breathing exercises. I don't that know. You don't seem to have very many great vulnerabilities. Seasickness is not one of them. That's You're, for sure. You can't you can't affect you by yelling at you on Twitter. I have no emotions. That's right. I've, I've yet to be able to get under your skin. I've spent years. I spent years <laughs> tamping down all my. <laughs> All my insecurities and just try not to think about them, and that really helps. I, apparently, it works for seasickness too. Who knew? When I called you a eugenicist, uh, you got you got a little mad, but it was ba- it was barely registered. You call me eugenicist, and I got out my calipers <laughs> and I measured your skull, and I was like, "I'm not taking that from you. <laughs> I'm not taking that from you, monkey boy." <laughs> uh, what did I think about the open ocean? It's I mean, little- what was the longest you've been on a ship? You know, I went to Antarctica a couple of years ago, right? And that Those that, are rough seas. that takes two or three days to cross the Drake Passage, and really rough seas. And you're on the ship for most of the resulting time. You know, you take day trips to see penguins and, and ice flows and whales and research stations, but you're on the ship for the better part of I don't know what that was, ten days maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a little claustrophobic. Like the view is nice. You know, the view on deck is nice at first, but when you're out of sight of any land, uh, really, the view on the ocean is what? It's it's a line. It's a blue line. There's not yeah. a lot going on. It's really, a, it's, what you're looking at is really the weather, <laughs> right. right? I mean, the view, the view from, uh, from a ship is either like the infinitely fascinating fractal patterns of waves cresting or... Yeah, the sky. I find that soporific very quickly, the waves. It's not, it's not like there's an endless parade of new things, uh, flying fish and, and volcanoes and sea serpents. It, it really is just, oh, this morning there were no clouds over there. Right. And now there's clouds over there. Um, right. <laughs> so it's refreshing at first to be at sea. And you, you see why people talk about the healing, you know, going to, get, going to sea for the 
healing air or maybe the just the freeing emotional quality, maybe the creative bump of of being away from things. But it's a little claustrophobic being on a boat. You're not someone who will just stare off into the middle distance for hours at a time. You start to get a little antsy. Uh, yeah. Uh, after, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds, uh-huh. <laughs> I start to think, well, something might be happening on my phone. Right. Is there internet here? And sadly, <laughs> yes. on a cruise ship. On a boat? <laughs> it's not good. Do you, are you able to just peacefully look at clouds? Well, you know, I'm someone who who does just stare at a spot on the wall or in the middle distance for hours at a time because I, because I am, uh, I, I inhabit mostly the rooms of my mind uh, and the outside world and things to do and, and other people are all just a distraction from. And I've measured that skull with my calipers. It is, it is a capacious place. There's a lot going on in there. It's all sugar castles and, and uh, <laughs> seven sided lighthouses. So yeah, being on a cruise ship and sitting and staring out at the ocean, I I kind of do that even here in in the house. I'll I'll watch the despite the absence of ocean. Yeah, I'll just watch, watch the kind of popcorn bags the, spin the, around the shadows as they go across the wall as the sun moves through the sky. Like <laughs> wow, it's just sort of looking at the curtains. Um, but I also find the cruise ship ultimately kind of claustrophobic because when you turn back from the ocean. You're looking at your small chamber, and then you go, you go into the halls, and it's like same old destinations available: the the lunchroom, the casino, the, the stage, pool. the pool. What what are the? Let me ask you this: What if the ship cruise ship was empty somehow? Oh, I think I would enjoy that very much. There's no crowds. That, that, that there would be that would be a, a lot to do, right? Yeah, it would be if I had like rollerblades. And was on an empty cruise ship out in the middle of the sea. I think I might enjoy that more. It's not the sense that you're in a a series of tight rooms. It's the sense that you're in a, a space with three thousand other people. That's right. And every time you turn a corner, you're at risk of there being someone there. And if it's the Joko cruise, someone in a leather top hat who's <laughs> going to say, "My liege, my good sir." But but even if it were a cruise ship just full of, I don't know, it would be a thousand times worse if it was just normals. Oh my gosh. Snorks. Not, not a leather top hat to be seen. But I've often thought about, you know, you can go to sea um, as a passenger on a container ship or, a, or on freighting ships. No, you can't. You can. You Wait, can. What, really? Yeah. You can book passage on, um, on commercial ships. There's not a ton of berths available. That's what I'm wondering. There's a few cabins that they have just for, for purposes such as these. I mean, in, in, so in, in movies, when some, our hero gets picked up by a cargo ship of some kind, they always seem to have a, a cabin to put them. Yeah. And of course the captain hits on the girl. Of course. But, so does that mean, I guess there's a, there's, they, they have a few just in case. Well, it's a, it's um. It's one of those things where it, it it's kind of a part of the adventure tour cult. Um, oh. You know, like adventure tour people. There's people who prefer it. Yeah, they get they get tired of just riding a Vespa into the jungle. They get tired of somebody, um, you know, their local guide taking them somewhere and then selling them to the highest bidder or stealing the little figurine. It's fun once. You know, it's fun once. But there, there are... Um, there are lots and lots of ways to see the world that are off the beaten path. And one of those is um, 
like hitching a ride on on freighters and is there enough of a cult of that that they can just charge what a what a cruise would or or is it like uh is this kind of a couponing thing where cost cutters can can find a cheap cheap passage it's that type of thing like uh, like we've talked before about american law prohibiting um prohibiting ships from doing trade between the states without you know it's why cruises have to be like just kidding we're going to uh what the Bahamas for a second? Right, we just we we drop. We can't go between American ports. Even the Alaskan cruises have to stop on Vancouver Island for that reason. So you're not able to get on a freighter in America and take it to another American city. Well, for 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 one thing, you'd be on land the whole time. Well, unless you, yeah, right. You're saying if you go through the Panama Canal you, or something, you'd... or even if you got on one in Seattle and went to L.A., I see. you couldn't you couldn't do. I that. thought you were saying you couldn't take a ship from Seattle to Omaha, and I agree. You cannot. Well, well, you would take the Seattle to Omaha Canal. <laughs> Are you working on that? I am. I've, been digging. I, I, I've seen the creek in your backyard. How, how far have you gotten? I started here and I've been, you know. <laughs> Is somebody else working from Omaha? I hope. <laughs> I hope. I'm, I'm on the phone with them. They say they are. I keep, they keep asking me to send more money and I keep doing it. Uh, but it. But it's a, um, it's a, you know, it's an, a little known thing and it's also a thing that, I mean, I don't. There are no amenities on a freighter, and I don't think that the people that are on the freighter, because that's their job and are working, are like, welcome, friend. You can't get some some surly Filipino guy to give you a, a massage or, or give you a mimosa? You don't think anybody brings you anything. He's got work to do. You just got a, you got a berth on a boat, but you do get to go all, all these – I mean, you get – there aren't really cruises – there aren't very many cruise ships that will take you a, completely across the Pacific Ocean, right? And And – you could ride from Seattle to China on one of these boats. Um, but the boats themselves, or I mean the ships rather, um, if, you, if you're a pedant and you would like to yell at me about saying boats versus ships, uh, please write to Ken at KenJennings.com. And I will, yell, Ken at underscore and I will yell at John for you as soon as we stop recording. Uh, but so, you know, some of these ships are among the largest structures ever constructed, the lar- largest human machines ever made. Bigger than a, a what? Bigger than a pyramid. Uh, bigger than a pyramid. B- taller than the Empire State Building. Wait, what? There's a ship or boat. I don't know which. Let's say ship. Taller than the Empire State Building? Well, the boat that we're here to talk about today, or ship, rather, uh, the uh, the Seawise Giant was, in fact, larger uh, than the Empire State Building. Longer even than the uh, Petronas Towers. Over 1,500 feet long. Wow. The so largest ship ever Empire, constructed. If the Empire State Building laid down. Oh, you, you it, were thinking I meant that the superstructure, yeah. the superstructure was taller what than if, the Empire State Building? It went like a thousand feet in the air. <laughs> now that How would big be would some, this boat have to be? That would be something. I mean, you can't, you can't get in a lot of tunnels, I guess. <laughs> can't go under the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, no, they, uh, you know, the, the, the ultra-large crude carriers, the, um, the biggest ships in the world are, in the case of the... Seawise Giant, you could put more than four football fields end to end across the deck of the ship. Do you think they've ever? Do you think they've ever done that? Yeah, you, I mean, like the first day out of port. That's got to be the first thing you try. Okay, guys, it's time to play four simultaneous games of American football. <laughs> the winds are going to make it tough. I was actually shooting baskets up on the the top deck of the cruise ship where mm-hmm. there was a hoop. Mm-hmm. Usually, it was employees out there, but I, I I was that was their smoking area. I was shooting baskets one day, and it really is. Hard. Was I telling you this? Like, if the there were times when 
you know, as long as the ship and the wind are moving in the same direction from when the ball leaves your hand to when it hits the basket, you're fine. But who knows where the basket's going to be if the ship is moving. But there were many times where the wind would change in between. <laughs> and uh, and suddenly, you know, I was aiming at a spot where the basket wasn't anymore. Right. So, yes, do not play four simultaneous games of football on the Seawise Giant. No, and in fact, the way that they measure them uh, in shipping, there's actually a... a um a football field sized tarp that they just kind of use as a as a measurement of ship size it's it's um it's standard practice <laughs> you make the ship and then you lay those out you lay the tarp find out how many like, football fields wow, we got look at this you guys <laughs> we did it four fields but the you know the the oil tanker is the biggest form of ship why is that um because i guess there's just well, go ahead. You were about to speculate. I have a theory about why, you know, it would take a long, anything that size that you were going to put containers on right. would take prohibitively long time to load and unload, right? right. Whereas I assume crude oil is, is fairly, you know, the speed of, of piping it in and out of a tank is, uh, is more efficient. It is now, right. And, and also, there are a lot of ways to, um, there are a lot of ways to move Product. What am, what am I trying to say? Uh, freight. There's other that's, options that's the for word. freight. Um, and fr- and freight shipping is also, uh, you know, a major component of the ships of the world. Those are big ships. They're big. big I ships. see them going up and down Puget Sound, straight up Juan de Fuca. But in terms of transporting oil, like the 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 efficiency of scale is uh, is so much greater. We use so much oil. And to um, we apologize, by the way, to, that's the, right. to the future after we Too after, bad. after our fossil fuels decimated the planet. Sorry, futurelings, for all the oil that we are using even now as we speak. Ken and I are sitting here in our oil-fired <laughs> <laughs> basement bunker. I was so worried when crude prices went down that I made plastic-scale models of all my children out of polystyrene just just to use some plastic. Yeah, I I every every morning get up and I pour a can of oil over myself and then I then I pour a can of oil down the sink drain just to clear the clogs while I sing the national anthem. <laughs> I'm going to get letters cuz I said decimate for devastate and I'm not going to put up with that. No. Decimate oh. colloquially does mean to devastate. It does not just mean to remove 9 tenths of something or whatever people are going to tell me. Oh, but you're you're going to you're going to Correct the internet I'm gonna, pedants by saying that it's a colloquialism? That I'm, never works. I'm going to pre-correct you <laughs> by saying that uh, decimate now just remains to destroy a large percentage of. Right. It, is not, it is not technically a decimal related. Take that, nerds. Uh, the original transportation of oil was, as you can imagine, you know, the, the, initially they thought to transport it just like any freight – um, they put the oil in barrels and they put the barrels on ships, but it was, it, it didn't take long to realize that the weight of the barrel was right. 30% of the weight of the, of the, the product. How, how recently was that? Like uh, up till what time were we sending oil around the world in barrels? Like, is that like 1850 or is that 1950? No, no, no. It was, it was the mid 1800s okay. by 18, by the 1870s, um, actually, the Nobel brothers, not um, Al- Alfred Nobel, uh, not Alfred Nobel himself, but his two brothers Ludwig and Robert. Wait, they wouldn't even let him in on the deal. Well, Alfred was over making dynamite. I don't know. He was on a different. He was on a different thing. I guess if you're transporting oil, the last thing you want is the brother that's always goofing around with dynamite. 
Well, Ludwig was one of the pioneers of developing oil shipping. I had no idea these guys were some super family. Yeah, and they they built the first the first like dedicated oil tanker was a boat called the Zoroaster, <laughs> and it was built to be able to sail from Sweden to the Caspian Sea via a series of canals and channels. Um, that's pretty much like your Seattle to Omaha plan. That's right. <laughs> but to transport, you know, that sort of uh, Caspian oil all the way back to Sweden in this, and it's, you know, it's a, a, a very small tanker by, by today's standards, but, um, but they sort of ushered in that, the, the new era of building ships purposely to just carry oil. Hey, by the way, I looked up the fourth Nobel brother, because he seems to not have the resume of the other two. Yeah. But unfortunately, and I thought it'd be fun to see what the, like the, yeah. who's the loser. Nerd, uh, runt. The, 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 what, the Stephen Baldwin of the Nobel family. Uh-huh. And? But it turns out it is not a funny story. He actually did not accomplish anything because he died at 21 while working, uh, while experimenting with nitroglycerin at his father's factory. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> he, too bad. He blew up in the family business. Imagine what he could have accomplished. We'll never know. No, we we'll never, never know. know. Sorry, do go ahead before I, uh, Got went down that rabbit hole. Um, it was, you know, oil shipping from that point to uh, throughout World War II. It was, um, you know, it became like a, a major component of world industry. You're as more and more things used petroleum, refined petroleum, and petroleum's only coming from you know rounding down five or six places, right? And it needs to get. I mean, even now you see that the major. Uh, can the the major ports where petroleum is being loaded onto ships and the major ports where petroleum is being loaded off of ships it's exactly what you would think you know all the all the petroleum is coming from the middle east and from south america and and, and refineries are in a relatively small number of places too there's not that many destinations for crude oil uh no the, well so refineries are are second place like there are a lot of refineries in the caribbean um you know refining uh, oil and gas is a is an industry in and of itself, and it's, it it doesn't require that the refineries be where the oil is. Why wouldn't you extracted. put the refineries where the oil is extracted? You put the refineries where it's cheapest to uh, do the refining for uh, for a hundred reasons, right? The, sure. the um, labor and 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 environmental laws and <laughs> whoever you know whatever nation decided that that was going to be a thing that they were going to specialize in as a as a way of uh, making their um, making their country uh, an industrial zone. Like I, I read the other day that um, that the Bahamas are building a new oil refinery like at the cost of $4 billion in um, – and, and St. Kitts, St. Nevis were um, – like refining oil was a big part of the local economy. And I had no idea. It's just um, – it's just a industrial uh, like field for your nation to go into. And if I were an evil oligarch, I would simply put the refinery next to the oil wells. Right. Think of all the think of all the boat time I'd save. But you know there's gotta be extra land out there in the Saudi desert somewhere. Refine and, it there. And it does make sense to think that um, if you're going to transport a bulk cargo like that, um, that you would transport the refined cargo. Oh, there's less of it. Uh, there's less of it than than the raw cargo. But in fact, you see this all the time in in uh, global capitalism, like the the 
the forest products of the Northwest now, we often just send raw lumber to Asia because it's easier and cheaper to process the lumber into wood products in Asia and then ship it back to the United States. It's so crazy that whatever the inefficiency of that, it's greater than the, it's less than the labor and regulatory differences. I that, guess. that is, but it's, but it's the nature of, uh, of global trade, at least now. And part of that is because petroleum remains like artificially inexpensive. The, the, um, in the economy of global oil tankers, at present, the cost of shipment of a gallon of gas from wherever it's extracted from the earth only increases the cost of the or the price of gasoline at the pump by two cents. Really? Shipment, you would think, was 40% of the cost, but it's not. Because the because the economy of scale is is so great and has been so um, so honed, and that's driven in part by these huge tankers, huge like tankers. because you're dividing whatever the cost of that voyage is, which I assume is astronomical, over just the millions and millions of barrels that yeah. these things contain. Over two billion barrels are shipped annually of of oil and gas around the world, um, and and the rise of the super tanker. Uh, and that's and the the uh, the Seawise Giant is you know the ultimate super tanker, but the rise of the super tanker didn't really uh, didn't really happen until after 1956 when the Suez Canal was closed during the Suez Crisis hmm. of 1956. There was a period there uh, pr- prior to that. All ships that were designed to, to uh, transport oil were designed to make it through the Suez Canal because the oil was was being produced in in countries that were on one side of the Suez and being consumed by countries on the other side. I see. And these modern supertankers would have been too big. So that was the limiting factor. Suez Canal and the Panama Canal were the limiting factors. But when the Suez closed, there was a, 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 a fairly protracted period of instability and insecurity in the region. Right. And a lot of the oil transporting uh, companies and countries – it just means um, you go the long way around Africa. You I just guess? had to go the long way, and when they when they realized that they weren't limited by the Suez in terms of what the displacement of the ships they were building, um, the Suez crisis lasted long enough that they built a class of ships that couldn't make it through the canal. Well, somebody like, probably ran the numbers and found out that this was even more efficient. That's what happened. It takes a, it takes another week or two, but but right. if, you, if you can take more oil, they said, "Look, if we're if we're going around Africa anyway, why not why not make the ships as big as three of these Suez ships. And they did. And they realized we don't need the canals. Um, we can, we can make mega boats. So that's the permanent state of affairs. Most, changed, changed the shipment of oil completely. Most global oil shipment now does not use the, are, are there still the same size requirements for the Panama and Suez canals? So? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the canals keep trying to, I mean, you, you've seen, you've seen video of boats going through the Panama canal where they, where you could put a piece of paper between the, right. between the side of the ship and the, and the side of the canal. I mean, there are limitations and, and, and there are ships that are built still purposely to make it through the canals, but the mega mega tankers, um, don't even bother. You know, they're, they're, they are, um, they're transiting the world in a whole whole different ecosystem. And there are plenty of oil tankers that can make it through the canal, but not the big ones, not the, not the super tankers. Do you think they excrete oil from their insides to kind of, to kind of, uh, 
lubricate themselves through the canal. I'm sure. I'm sure that they use they use every part of the, of the buffalo. Is somebody out there rubbing <laughs> butter on the outside of the ship like Marlon Brando? Squeak, squeak, squeak. Uh, and all of this came to a sort of a natural climax, I guess, in the early 1970s when the price of oil was, I mean, you know, the 1970s felt like, I'm sure from the perspective of 1971, like we were using more oil than ever before and there was going to be an unlimited demand and an unlimited supply and it, you know, Judging by the size of the cars. Yeah, cars couldn't. I think that was true. We could we could double the size of cars and and there would still be demand. Uh, and it was the energy crisis in the 1970s when um, when OPEC decided to really clamp down on the price of oil and kind of you know to make a make a gambit to control the world. I'm sure it was the same thing. They did the math on the back of an envelope and was like, wait a second, wait we can be making more money right. if we drive the price up to this much. And the only way to do that is to choke off the world. And w- w- so the Seawise Giant was a ship designed during an era of constructing giant super tankers. Uh, and des- pre, Pre-oil crisis. The, the, they were designed and conceived pre-oil crisis. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the Seawise Giant and, and a whole family of ships built at that same time, specifically the Batillus class of giant tankers that were made in France around the same time, um, they were all built with the idea that shipping oil was going to be the big, that was the big game. Uh, the Seawise Giant was originally ordered by a, a Greek shipping magnate, and you know, in the in the legend of our time, like Greek shipping magnate, just uh, we we say those words together. Futurelings probably are either sentient gr- Greek shipping magnates, and they know exactly what we're talking about. You're implying that our our Greek shipping magnates were not sentient. Uh, well, they weren't collectively a sentient organism. We had so many, we called them GSMs. GSMs. And everyone would know what you meant. Uh, they, it was such a type that uh, the, the villain in those Tintin comics is some comically diabolical Greek shipping magnet. That's right. We have, we, they were bond villains, but they also, Oh yeah. They also rescued our first, our favorite first lady from a lifetime of, um, of living in gray gardens. What what was the, yeah, I don't know. Did did people like Onassis? Yes. Right. He's a dashing romantic figure. I don't think people like Onassis. They loved Jackie. O so much that they tolerated Onassis. Right. I mean, Onassis was sort of a Prince Rainier figure, a, uh, a little bit of a, but like least, a, but at least Prince Rainier is a romantic figure. It's not like who's this guy sullying American womanhood. Well, sure, but you know he's a little bit lumpen compared to <laughs> Grace Kelly. Everyone's a little bit lumpen compared to Grace <laughs> right? Kelly. I mean, don't you? You want if Prince Rainier looked like um, uh, looked like John Hamm, he, he'd probably be on the on the American dollar bill by now. We would have renamed Mount Rainier Mount Ham. Mount, Mount Ham. It's a big mountain of ham. But but Prince Rainier, you know, he sort of looked like a guy that worked in middle management. Not exactly. <laughs> I mean, I I'm not, I wasn't swept off my feet. But uh, but this the the original Seawise Giant long before it was called the Seawise Giant when it uh, it's an its original name was Porthos. Uh, was ordered by an unnamed Greek shipping magnate. And I have done quite a bit of work to try and figure out just exactly what Greek shipping magnate or, uh, ordered this 
this ship. It was a UGSM. It was a UGSM. There have to be... Does that mean there's no record of it or just that he's not important enough to remain in the... It did not make it into the story and there's enough... uh, It's enough of a mystery that there are people on the internet who have commented on the fact that, who is this guy? Why did it... Why did his name never make it into the public record? Porthos Um, is one of the three musketeers and maybe kind of the... Am I I remembering this right? That he's kind of the large earthy one? He's a... He's a dandy and a gourmet and stuff. I but think. does Porthos have? Is he one of the three musketeers? Because that name is a reference to something in Greek. Oh, that's a history good question. and cult- culture. I don't think that's true. Actually, I think I think it might just be. It's just an invention of. I think it might just Dumas. be a, a French invention. Yeah. Autumn is here, John. Autumn is here, and you know what Season autumn makes... Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. You know what it makes me think of? What does it make you think of? Well, I, it makes me think of new t-shirts of my favorite media properties. The gift-giving season is going to begin fairly soon. Mm-hmm. And here at Omnibus, here in the bunker, we have not always done the best job at keeping a steady stream of Omnibus merch no, it's true. out in the universe. It's true. Our futurelings are often... Uh, they often contact us. They're clamoring for omnibus branded merch. They're naked. They're shirtless. Yep. Uh, because fashions change and seasons change. Seasons change and so seasons do we. Seasons change. And now it's fall and you want some new, I mean, a lot of futurelings are t-shirt wearers, let's be honest. We are going to have a steady stream of t-shirt designs going forward. Start Starting this month. What do you mean a stream? Do you mean like different t-shirt designs over time? Yes. There's going to be new shirt designs every month. Uh, for October in our t-shirt store, we have brought back the two t-shirt designs that we had briefly available well over a year ago, <laughs> whenever that was. Right. Uh, a time period so brief that many of you may not remember. Those shirt designs are now available again at mediocrity.com. That's M-E-D-I-O-C-R-I-T-E-E. So mediocrity, but with a T-E-E like T-shirts instead of T-Y. Dot com slash omnibus. And then... Every month, we're going to have a new set of, of T-shirt designs. So, um, collect them all. <laughs> <laughs> so, this month, it's the Omnibus and Futureling designs that uh, longtime fans may remember from a year or two ago. Uh, the shirts are great. They uh, print on next-level shirts, which are soft, high-quality. Uh, we've got women's size uh, small through triple XL and men's size small through quadruple XL. Um, these are our, this is our friend Dave Rutledge of Meh helping us out with shirt sales. He's the guy that owns my styrofoam head and made you tell stories that were better than my stories on the show. He has bought your styrofoam head not once, but twice on the open market. What's the normal number of times to buy someone's styrofoam head? I'd say two. It's, I think it's under one. Really? It's closer to zero than one. Let's see. I'm thinking about all the styrofoam heads of famous people that I've purchased. Do you have a list of those celebrities yeah, ready to go? Most of them I've only bought at one time. Who are some examples of those celebrities? I have Rue McClanahan yeah, at home. I have uh, Tony Millionaire. <laughs> and uh, let's see. Uh, I have Dom DeLuise. You do? I, li- I like to get giant celebrity heads, uh, styrofoam heads of celebrities with giant heads. I have Jason Isbell. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's nice. It's a big head. Um, so if you are uh, missing... 
omnibus shirts in your wardrobe, if you're looking for omnibus gift-giving ideas for the upcoming holiday season. That's right, because if you if you order now, the shirts will be in your hot little hands or tentacles or antennae. It's true. You must be a bipedal omnibus listener with the normal number of four limbs, I'm afraid. Not necessarily. If you have eight limbs, you can put two of them through the sleeves of this t-shirt. And maybe drill your own holes if necessary. Drill your own holes. That's the omnibus motto. Go check out the shirt designs at mediocrity.com slash omnibus and look out for new designs every month. After the Seawise Giant was constructed, it was it was um it was ordered in 1974, but it wasn't completed until 1979. I wish, I wish that the global oil economy was very different. Global oil economy was very different. And there are two stories about what happened to our un, unnamed Greek shipping magnate. In one case, he went bankrupt in the interim and so was unable to accept delivery of the Porthos. And in another version of the story, it turned out that during sea trials, the Porthos was uh, was very big, but had um, had some shuddering problems as it tried to come about the boat. You know, because of its scale and design, it handled badly. It handled badly, and so, so Consumer Reports gave it the little gave the, little the little black half little circle. Black circle. So the <laughs> so. W- we can't judge our unnamed Greek shipping magnate because, first of all, we don't know ex- we don't know who this person is, and we don't know exactly why they didn't accept delivery of the Porthos. But in failing to accept delivery, then the that's a bummer when you make this billion dollar ship, and then the client is like, uh, "You know what?" It was made in Japan by the Somitomo Heavy Industries Corporation, and that's one of those Japanese corporations that makes. Giant super tankers, bridges, submarines, computers, tractors, <laughs> pianos, motorcycles. That's right. <laughs> right. Um, where where the list of things that they make just sort of boggles the mind, and you wonder exactly what? How can a business do these? How does Yamaha make motorcycles and pianos? Like, what does the factory floor look like in a place like this? Do you think there's just at some point there was one son who was like, "Hey, uh, you know, we could also be doing scooters." Right. I'll be the scooter guy. And then the then the youngest one was like, I'll be the nitroglycerin. Oh, too soon. Because today you wouldn't be surprised if some mega company was making both baby food and sarin gas, but you would just assume that it had acquired two other companies. That's right. But these these Japanese, um, what are they called? Zaibatsus, they just came by it naturally. Yeah. They, they were dreamed up as ways to make everything. Yeah, right. The post-1980s model of it is, oh, sure, you're, you make baby food and, and laptops. It's because... Some CEO thought it was a good idea to buy all these companies, but you're right. You're absolutely right. The, the, these, um, these industrial, and there are lots of them in the United States too, that are, they just bid on things <laughs> and, and, you know, somebody that works there is like, Hey, uh, there's a, there's a company that wants to build an underground or like an undersea city, uh, that's made out of, uh, of candy corn. And it's like, we can do it. So were these guys stuck with the ship then? Well, so what they did was now they had the ship and they they presumably our our lonely Greek Greek shipping magnate lost his deposit. He's lonely. And then they were able to turn around and try and resell the ship. And they entered into a contract with a, a Chinese shipping magnate 
so great a magnate that he's often referred to as, as the Onassis of the Orient. Ooh, uh, that's pretty good. That is, right? Uh, his name is, uh, oh, he was a man by the name of Tung Chao Yung. And in the way that Chinese names are are inverted, um, with Tung being his last name and Chao Yung being his first name, when it was transliterated into his sort of English name, he was known as C.Y. Tung or Chao Yung Tung. Oh, that was true. That was true in Korea also when I was a kid. All the attorneys at my dad's firm, um, you know, among the Korean attorneys, they would go by their full name where, where Kim or Lee or whatever would be first. Right. But then to the American attorneys, it would be like, this is J.T. Lee. This is Y.M. Kim. I guess they thought the initials kind of. Yeah, made them sound businessy. Some some uh, some uncanny valley between Korean name and American name, I guess. Well, and so C C Y Chow Young or C Y Tung uh, took that um, took that little transliteration or that little pun uh, a little further, or rather, turned it into a pun by naming all of his ships the C Ys. Oh, because they're C Ys. They're C Ys. They belong to C Y, but they're. They're wise of the sea, or uh, they are wise in the way of the sea. Sea wise, S E A W I S E. I mean, sea wise is an actual word in in Webster's, right? Meaning like nautical or whatever, like right. in the same way that uh, you know. I guess that was a bit twentieth century thing to comically add wise to the end of nouns. Uh, it was kind of the fad, just like today we might do. I don't know. Is there something we do with that today? Yeah, webwise. Yeah, I guess we oh, still do the same thing. Yeah, good old webwise. Or so, uh, so what CY did was he said, so CY at one point in his life owned 150 ships. Like, uh, uh, he was a major, major, um, player in the, in the global shipping industry. And at this point he recognized an opportunity with this, um, with the Porthos, but he said, I'll buy the Porthos, but I want it to be even bigger. Oh, and there's a there's a thing in shipbuilding called jumboization, <laughs> and jumboization. I guess that's our wise is isation. Isation, yeah. Jumboization is a process by which um, ship owners realize that it will be cheaper to take a pre-existing ship, cut it in half, and add an additional amount of ship in the middle and zip it back together. And they're not made to do this like an accordion, right? No. You literally have to... Take it apart. Cut it open. And put more ship in the middle and s- stitch it back together. It would be cheaper and more efficient to do that than to build a whole ship from new. That makes sense. And what's interesting about ships is, of course, at the bow, I think you can picture this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this to the sentient Aspens who may never have pictured a ship. At the bow, it's very skinny. Yes. It's narrow at the bow to cut through the water. That's how it... But then as the bow widens out to amidships, most ships go through a, go through, uh, the, 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 through, throughout their middle, their dimensions are more or less it's the, static. It's the same width for a long run in the middle. The, the same width, the same, you know, the, the, it's not just breadth, but it's also like draft. Mm. Like the boat is just becomes the cross a kind section of, is the same. The cross section is the same. Got that's it. right. It's what made the, um, the, the constellation, the, the most beautiful airplane that ever flew, um, 
it made the Constellation such a difficult airplane to make or retrofit because the Constellation was designed so that the tube of the airplane was completely different <laughs> at every point. At every point. Uh, and if you look at contemporary jets, their circumference is even from to, uh, uh, from tip to tail so that everything can be standardized. Whereas a ship, you can just essentially extrude as right. if out of Play-Doh. Right. Huh. And so jumboization is, it's very common practice in in shipping, and it is in planes now too. If you if you look at the seven four sevens, or seven three sevens, or any, you know any kind of uh, contemporary jet, you'll see them come in different sizes. And it's just that they made one, and then they cut it in the middle and added some extra stuff in there, and it's sort of jumboized. But so Cy Tong said, "I'll buy the Porthos, but we need to jumboize it. it it's never even." It's, it's already jumbo. It's, I mean, it's, it's not, but it's still huge. Right? It's a big, big ship. But it's a chonker. It's a, it's a thick, it's a thick boy. It's a thick boy. Before it ever even really carried a carried a lick of anything, it already went, was sent back into the shipyard, cut in half, and a big additional amount of ship was added to the middle. Mm. And when it came out the other side, it was the largest ship ever. Uh, the largest ship ever constructed. It had, um, it was over. Lay, fi- some, lay some numbers on me. It was over fifteen hundred feet long. It uh, it could carry five hundred and sixty four thousand tons of oil, meaning that um, that's a lot of oil. It's a lot of oil, and there are a lot of ways to measure the size of ships. There's uh, there's gross tonnage. There's displacement. There's, um, there's like size, uh, there's sort of size of area of the ship. Like the footprint of it? Um, the footprint or, or rather the, the, the sort of air contained within the, within the structure I of guess the that, ship. That's different than displacement depending on how low it rides, right? It is, right. Like the, um, the aforementioned Batillus class super tankers which were built in France during this same period, um, they had the they had a larger gross tonnage, but in the in shipping gross tonnage doesn't measure weight; it's a measurement of area, Tonne- of volume. Tonnage is a measure of volume. Gross tonnage in sh- in, in describing the construction of a ship is a measure of volume. And so the the Batillus class had a larger gross tonnage, but it was the it was the Seawise that was both longer and had um, a greater capacity and a and a and a greater loaded displacement. It had a displacement of six hundred and fifty seven thousand odd tons. What about its capacity to love? Um, like me, like I. <laughs> The C- right. the Seawise Giant had an unlimited capacity to love. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, curiously about this ship, or maybe curiouser and curiouser, when it was fully loaded, it had a draft, which is to say it sank down into How the sea. deep it goes? 81 feet, which made it ineligible to transit the English Channel. <laughs> Because it hits the seabed, yeah, or <laughs> or to or to navigate the English Channel 
it would require you can't just steam through it, right? You would have to you'd have to pick out a path, and it's too long. It, it could not turn those corners to turn the corners. Oh my gosh! So it was excluded from even traveling through the English. I've channel. had parking spots in parking garages like that where yeah, the the car is there's it's no just, way it can get in there. The, the the they painted those lines on the ground. But those lines do not represent anything in reality. That's right. They represent just someone's imagination. That's crazy. Yeah. But I guess there's still enough deep water ports that a boat like that can get into. So what Sorry, the, a ship. You know, what, what it's trying to do, what its job in the world was, what C.Y. Tung imagined it doing was going from a uh, an oil processing, you know, an offshore processing place in Qatar and taking that oil to Long Beach, California, or whatever, you and, know, like... And just dumping it and causing a huge spill. That's right. It doesn't even have to dock. Just, just, it's just a point-to-point transit. This thing doesn't have to be, this doesn't have to be agile. It doesn't have to be multi-purpose. If it can just take this, you know, plus 500,000 tons of oil from place A to place B, um, it will be cost-effective. And so... Tung was, uh, he got a lot of service out of this ship and, you know, it kind of was in this, it was in this, this new super class of industrial creations. Like how much, how much more can mankind do? Right. Like the era of the Astrodome or whatever. Like just imagine what a big thing made of steel and masonry we did. Incredible. big, Big pat on the back. Hooray for us. Builders of things, industrious ants. But wouldn't there have been a uh, a run of these if they actually are the future of, of oil transportation? Well, because the energy crisis sort of changed the dynamic of um, of global oil trade, there wasn't as much demand for these. I mean, it was good to have a half a dozen of them, but there was a lot more demand for sort of flexible shipping that could do... Um, that could that that, that weren't routes yeah and... that weren't confined to this. For instance, the Exxon Valdez. <laughs> That's my definition <laughs> of a successful oil banker. Tell, <laughs> tell me more. The Exxon Valdez was um, you know, uh, less than half the size of this ship. Luckily. And that's right. And the Valdez, but you know, this is... And you can drive it drunk, which is amazing. Well, you can't actually. (laughs) Zero for Uh, one. (laughs) um, But the Valdez, you know, if you you think about uh, the need for ships to be able to go into Alaska and take oil out of of Valdez, like there's no way that the Seawise Giant could have done it. The Seawise Giant couldn't have made it to all these new, um, you know, it, 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 it required purpose built facilities you know it was it was much more of a limited and also you know built with 70s technology most oil tankers only have a 10-year lifespan oh is that right they're you know they just rust away yeah they're just churning through these machines and again you would think they're so costly and like such um such an investment to make one and really you just you you, yeah, you, what happens to them? You use them up after 10 years? It's gotta, that's just got to be hundreds of millions oh, of dollars of raw material, right? Can the life of the sea. Oh, it wears, it wears a man down. <laughs> it wears a ship down to a noob. But uh, a man, uh, when he's done with his life at sea, he can, uh, I don't know what he does. Yeah, he goes he, and chews on his meerschaum pipe. He runs a lighthouse, maybe? Yeah. Well, what do they do with the, with the ships? They take them to India and where there is an entire industry of ship breaking. (laughs) 
It's true. And they're <laughs> just, just a lot of angry people. Like, this is the only job I love. I could do anything, but I just like hitting hulls with hammers. There are these wonderful wide beaches in India where, the, where it's a, a very shallow, gradual beach up to, you know, and sort of beaches as far as the eye can see in every direction. And rather than use them as vacation destinations for whatever reason, uh, many, many years ago, an industry developed there where people who wanted to get rid of a ship would sell their ship to a shipbreaker. The shipbreaker would, and I've watched a hundred of these videos and they're some of the greatest videos. They line up the ship at the beach. They put the throttle forward. The ship just churning runs itself. And these are giant, giant tankers runs itself right up on the beach. The beach is covered with guys in, in, uh, their, in their dungarees. Is it, are they trying to see how far it can get? Is yeah. this like the discus they throw? Just try and get it as far, you know, they, they do it at high tide. They try to get that ship all the way up out on the, the beach water. as far as they can. And then as the tide goes out, the, uh, the people whose job it is to take this boat apart, just start taking it apart. Does the guy who, uh, who, uh, aimed at the beach and, and put it on full throttle, does he stay on the boat? M- must. I mean, somebody's got to ride that boat up he's the just beach. Gotta, he's got to hang on. I would think that would be the greatest job in the world. The the pilot who ends up, you know, the, being the final pilot of every one of these these giant ships. I mean, you really don't have to worry about crashing. Like it's it, that's right. If you don't crash, you get fired. You, have to, you we, get in here. You, you didn't crash that boat. You want to get it as far up the beach as you can. I mean, what a hot job. Anyway, I highly recommend watching shipbreaking. Uh, beaching videos. And then when it's up there, they just get disassembled like yeah, a the, team of the, Borg. The, uh, the, the TIG welders come out and the guys swarm the boat. They take everything. They unbolt everything that, uh, that they can do anything with. And it all gets turned into scrap, scrap metal and, and processed. And India is the world center for this ship. Well, that's nice. It gets recycled. And that ends up being the fate of the sea wise giant. But a couple of things happen in between uh, in between its illustrious career and and its uh, untimely end, or its rather its well timed end, uh, the Seawise Giant very famously was in 1988. Uh, it was taking on oil at an Iranian oil facility in the Persian Gulf uh, at a place called Karg Island, and this was during a period where the uh, Iran Iraq War was really escalating. And the Iraqis mounted a daring mission where they flew a thousand miles across the Persian Gulf in their, in their, uh, probably Mirage fighter planes. Republican guard. And they dropped a bunch of parachute bombs on all of these oil tankers that were parked at Karg Island taking on Iranian oil. And the Iranians are, are trying to, you know, they're being embargoed by the United States, presumably, and they're, this is how they make money to finance their war and to keep food on the shelves, is sell oil internationally. On, on some black market, or can they, are there nope. actually state actors who will buy Iranian oil? I'm sure China was buying Iranian oil this entire time. I mean, there's, there was still, in the 80s, mm-hmm. a, a global market for Iranian oil, and in fact, probably the United States was buying it all the time, uh, yeah. just... Yeah, via a third party. And the Iraqis were trying to, you know, I I think both Iraq and Iran tried to interrupt one another's oil business as part of the larger conduct of the war. And Iraq, in this case, scored some direct hits. They sank the Barcelona, which was a uh, 
which was a similar tanker in fantastic style. Uh, it you know burned burned itself down to the waterline and sank there in place. Is this not trouble that they're not just limiting themselves to Iranian facilities, but also presumably other nations and other multinationals' expensive fleets? Well, so they're um, the the rules of war in this instance were that the United States Navy would come to the aid of any ship in trouble in the Persian Gulf, except if that ship actually entered into what were called the exclusion zones around combatant facilities. And if you pull the up... The Seawise Giant knew what it was getting into. Yeah, if, you, if the Seawise Giant pulls up to the, to the pump uh, and, the, and it's flying a big Iranian flag... The U.S. Navy policy at the time, which formerly had been just to defend U.S. ships, but they'd recently – the Reagan administration had recently extended it to sort of general shipping. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, they were like, hey, you know, you, you're at a – it's a war between these countries and you went to one of their ports and so you, you know, you you're on your own. And the Seawise Giant burned, uh, you know, catastrophically – and sank there uh, in the Persian Gulf. At the time, it uh, it left the largest ship then on the ocean was a ship by the name of the or a ship owned by Esso called the Esso Atlantic. Another oil tanker, I guess. And the Esso Atlantic had just prior changed its registration from Liberia, one of the great uh, ship flagging nations of the world. Liberia. That, What's it? You get a good deal. You can, uh, yeah. Well, you're not. Um, if if you like the the country that flags the most ships in the world is Panama. Yeah. Like over 500 giant ships are registered in Panama. Liberia is second with also four, over 500 ships. But is it just like insurance companies in Wilmington, Delaware? It's like exactly the, the laws are favorable. The laws are favorable. The, the registration the fees are cheap. Labor laws. Um, you're you know you're su- subject to. You know, a lot fewer restrictions. Super unfriendly to actual workers. But the Eso Atlantic had just changed its registration from Liberian to Bermudan because if it was registered in Bermuda, then the Eso Atlantic was protected by the British Navy right. in the Persian Gulf. And so when the Seawise Giant sank, all of a sudden Eso Atlantic was, was the big player and, uh, and, you know, the Royal Navy had to protect it. But that was not the end of the Seawise Giant. It sat there underwater for a while, and it was recognized that, kind of like jumboization, it would be economically feasible to refloat the Seawise Giant and still cheaper than to build Building another new one. tanker. So in, um, in 1991, a company called Norman International uh, raised the Seawise Giant, towed it to Singapore, and rebuilt it. And launched it again as the Happy Giant <laughs> because now it's no longer underwater. It's now no it's longer happy. underwater. It's happy. It's survived uh, to to sail the seas. The Happy Giant then was sold to a um, Scandinavian shipping magnate, another super Bond villain type, named Jorgen Yar, and Yar changed the name to the Yar Viking. That's not as good. The Yar Viking. I liked the Happy Giant. It made me think of Happy uh, Giant was cute. It made me think of frozen vegetables. Happy Giant. Um, it didn't. It didn't stay the Happy Giant for long. Yar. Yar changed it to Viking. If your name's Yar, you really Yar. have to be a shipping magnet. Yar, you? especially a, a Scandinavian one. Right. 
The Yard Viking continued to uh, be the largest ship on the ocean for, I guess, another 15 years. Wow. Um, but gradually started to, uh, the, the, just the, the ways of the world had changed. It was not efficient anymore to, um, all the technology on it. Yeah. This 40 just years old or whatever. wasn't how, uh, how oil was being shipped. And so in 2004, it was sold to, um, to a new company, the first Olson tankers. They changed its name to the knock Nevis which is one of those things that's like how, why, how they name racehorses. I have no idea, but like Knock Nevis. Sounds Scottish. Is yeah, it, a little bit. Is it supposed oh, to be? Oh, Knock Nevis. I don't know what it, I don't know what Knock Nevis is supposed to mean. I didn't go that far into it. But the Knock Nevis um, did, it did a thing that, uh, that happens to these giant super tankers where they started to use it as an offshore holding tank. So in a lot of these, it doesn't go anywhere. No, they just parked it off of some um, some offshore loading platform and used it as storage. It's still uh, it's still performing a real necessary function. You know, if if you are if you're loading oil onto deep water ships, you need a place where you can consolidate that oil, both loading on and loading off. And so the Nevis sat um, parked in Qatar for another five years starting in the mid two thousands. And it wasn't until 2009 that they realized that the, that the sea wise giant, the happy giant, the Yar Viking, the knock Nevis had, had concluded its, its even, time here. Even as a tank. That's right. And so they, uh, they changed its name one last time to the Mont. Is that a thing you do when you when you kill a ship? You change its name? Must because I, I my understanding is that that it's fairly risky to change the name of a ship because of all the superstitions. Yeah, you don't want to mess around. Although you see it all the time, people change the names of ships all the time. But I I think of it as a thing that accrues to you a certain risk. I had a friend of the who spirits. I had a friend who uh, who had uh, got a boat in Anacortes, and he was full of stories about. Uh, you know, the, the, the new owner changed the name, but he accidentally left the old name in one place oh, no. on the underside of a thing or on a drink coaster or whatever it was. And of course... The ocean sprites. Yeah, within a week it had, it had wrecked on the craggy shore or something. I had no idea that was something they took so seriously. If you change it, you got to change it everywhere. Yeah, although they've they changed the name of our poor Seawise Giant enough times. Um, and I guess... The moral of the story is eventually the sea wise giant ended up beached in India. I guess if you know you're going to beach the ship, then you don't care that much. Right. Right. And I don't know. Then it would be good if it's going to wreck. Maybe every ship gets its name changed to the Mont for that that, that (laughs) final slow procession. There's one name for dead ships that they all have to have. (laughs) But the ship was so large that it took over a year to break it apart. And, um, and then, like in all things in in the world, I'm sure the steel was recycled into ingots. Those ingots were transported via another ship to a mill. The mill processed it into board feet. The board feet got turned into gallons. And now, almost certainly, this laptop that I'm recording this show with you on um, has some component in it 
that's touched the sea wise giant. Is it like you know Julius Caesar's last breath? There's some molecule of air from in every in every mouthful of air you breathe. Whenever you turn on a TV, some of the static that you see are photons from the Big Bang, and some of the some of the. Uh, Elements of your ballpoint pen came from the Seawise Nevis. One of the nice the things Giants. about, I mean, one of the nice things about renewables is this whole problem goes away, right? I mean, you still, I guess you still have to store power and get it to new places. Did you kill the bug on your mic? Yeah, I did. That's good. Everybody got to hear it. Everybody, everybody got to hear the death of that bug. That was, that was a, a little fruit fly that was really bothering me and I just whacked him onto the mic. But you don't have big tankers full of sunlight or wind right. going around the world. Electricity is much cheaper to move from place to place, right? Yeah, and I think eventually, as we wean ourselves off of petroleum, stories, sh- I mean, ships like the Seawise Giant are already gone, mostly from the world. There are some super tankers still, none of that, none, none that quite reach those lofty heights. But we'll gradually see oil making this journey around the world um, is like a smaller and smaller component of the global energy exchange. And hopefully in our lifetimes, it becomes a negligible. I'm weaning myself already. I drink a slightly smaller glass of motor oil every morning. Uh, And I feel a little less patriotic, but, you know, in the long run, I think I'm doing the right thing. I did pour a quart of motor oil over my head this morning, but I didn't pour one down the sink doing my part. And that concludes Seawise Giant, entry 1121.ac2718, certificate number 36640, in the omnibus. Uh, There are little tiny particles of John and me everywhere on the internet. If you look up at Omnibus Project or at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick on any social media network, you can see us doing TikTok dances, unless TikTok is illegal in your country. In which we are not. Uh, did your did your Twitter get deleted when the big QAnon purge happened, or are you still on Twitter? Uh, oh, did it did it get deleted? Yeah, did they find out you're a, you're a QAnon tweeter? Oh no 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 one no one can uh, can parse my tweets enough to see that I've been I've been tweeting about They're Q like, this entire time. The, he's using the pizza emoji, but I think he might be actually talking about pizza. Yeah. Uh, well, so John, I'm not. John and I have escaped the Twitter <laughs> purge. They have not found out the secret QAnon messages in our accounts. Uh, you could email us in our era at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. if you want to send us uh, physical items. You can send those to PO Box. 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Send us a big tank of crude oil for John's morning ablution. Someone sent you this, and I don't see a return address, so I don't know who to credit it with. I mean, I have a piece of paper saying, for John, obviously, Hmm. but I don't know. What makes it so obvious? Well, uh, which of us would be more likely to want a 1934, a name tag from the 1934 State Convention of the Ohio Hairdressers Association? Oh, I think that's probably me, isn't it? I think you're going to be wearing this quite a bit. I can't read the name of the original hairdresser. Oh, look at that. Isn't that great? The original hairdresser is... Starts with a W? Yeah, Wolfie. Wolfie? Wolfie Steekland. Wow. I guess it could be short for Wolfgang. Wolfgang. And they also sent you a travel guide to Mulvania, land untouched by modern dentistry. Mulvania. It's a fake, it's kind of a Borat style (laughs) fake tour guide. Sure, Slobovia. And it seems very, it seems very funny. Uh, 
Boy, they went to a lot of trouble to write this. To write this review. There's just a series of fake uh, restaurant reviews. Bistro Vio Jar is a 24-hour cafe not far from the railway station. The food is cheap if a little bland, and the waiters can't be faulted as they're armed. The thick soups are a good value, and the bottomless cups of coffee are a further draw card, especially for members of Luton Blog's homeless community. This, so, is, this is an enormous book for that one joke to play out. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> and think, like, 30 jokes like that on a page. Per page. I think. So thank you to Nameless, I think, Seattle... Judging by the postmark listener who hmm. sent us a, a fictional tour guide to Mulvania, which now you can add to your to your list of Moldovas and stuff. Yeah, this seems like a thing to uh, to put in the bathroom for people who aren't from here. They'll <laughs> get very confused. Here's for a, a guide while. to the Mulvanian Alps. I thought that was where John Mulvaney was from. Hmm. Uh, you can uh, congregate with your fellow Futurelings online uh, by looking for the Futurelings group on Facebook. There's a subreddit. There's a Discord. Uh, the most direct way you can support... There are many ways to support the show. I mean, just by listening to it and laughing quietly to yourself and bringing a little extra contentment into the world, you've supported the show. You could also support the show by uh, recommending it to friends yes. or reviewing it online. If you have the financial wherewithal, you can even become a Patreon supporter by hey. going to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and enjoying all of the fruits and perks of, of membership uh, of... of of supporting Omnibus. You're reading about Mulvania. You don't have an I, outro ready to go. Yeah, even even if you um, even if you don't have the financial wherewithal, it really the cost of entry to join the Omnibus uh, Futurelings is is surprisingly low. Five dollars a month gets you the Addenda Show. You couldn't get a cup of coffee in Luton Blog for that. That's that's hundred percent right. Try and go to Mul the Mulvanian uh, the Mulvanian Alps and listen to an addenda of any kind. Do you mind if I loudly eat this apple no, while I, you uh, while you do the outro? Please do. This is going to be a new thing I do every week. Here we go. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. We gave people a, an out so they can't complain about this. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>